0: Hey, hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacy Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Bing West, who has been embedded on the front lines for years in Iraq and Afghanistan, an author of a dozen books about U.S. wars, including his latest book, The Last Platoon. Join us to discuss how Afghanistan, the, the Afghanistan war, what lessons. will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And With that, I will turn the discussion over to Bing West.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm a grunt. Uh, All my life I've been on battlefields. I was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security, but but really what I bring to this subject is the frontline view. I fought for many years in Vietnam, wrote three books about that. Then I wrote three books about Iraq after embedding with our forces there for many years. Then I wrote three books about Afghanistan while embedding with our forces there for many years. Lessons. When you look back, what are the lessons that I suggest came out of Afghanistan, and and will they really be lessons going forward? Um, Let me me say that there are three things that I'd just like to address presently about the lessons and in the future. The first is our culture. The second is the locus of war fighting decision-making in the United States. And the third is the decision-making style of our commanders. Let's start with our own culture. Why did we do what we did in Afghanistan? And what was it that we did? Consider, we went into Afghanistan to destroy Al-Qaeda because they had murdered 3,000 Americans on 9-11. We had pushed them into a corner very quickly in Afghanistan by November after three months of fighting, not even that. But then we let them escape into Pakistan and then we changed the entire mission. And President Bush said, we owe freedom and a good life to all Afghans, all 30 million Afghans. And we as a culture accepted that. Now consider that for a moment, we had this tremendous shift in policy done, I think for evangelical reasons, decent reasons, but evangelical, not not reasons of our national security. And yet we accepted it, all of us Americans accepted it. Why? I think for two different reasons. First, because we felt we were so rich, so powerful, that we could do pretty much what we wanted to do, and second, we were driven by a desire to do good. There's no other way you can look at it. We, we, we weren't there to conquer. We were there to liberate the Afghan women, et cetera, et cetera. We undertook all these things to build a nation, not to make that nation a satrap of ours in any way, but out of some some, desire to do good in nobility because we had so much wealth, we felt we could do anything. Consider that cultural framework. Then the question becomes, well, who makes these decisions? The White House. And the White House, over the last, I'd say, 50 years, 70 years, has become almost like like Rome to the Catholic Church in a way, uh, the, the, the seat of all power, in a way that was not intended by the Founding Fathers. Our Founding Fathers intended that the Congress would be a separate group of ambitious people that would offset the ambition of the White House. So James Madison had the idea that you'd have one group of ambitious people wanting power and another group of ambitious people wanting power, and therefore you would have a division between the executive branch and the Congress, which would mean that neither had the ability that now has begun to creep in there that the White House is beginning to resemble King George III and a Regency that we initially fought against. (laughs) And I don't say that lightly. There, and it is due to The polarization of our politics to the extent that in Congress, one party and the other disagree with each other to such a degree that whichever party also has the incumbent in the White House automatically runs to his side or her side and there they are. And this is not what the founding fathers intended. So when you look at the decisions during the Afghan war, they were almost all just made by the White House a small group of people, when you go into the White House, when you go into that Oval Office, I don't care who you are, you recognize that you are dealing with august power. When you walk down those corridors in the White House with, with, with this thick, the, the carpeting beneath you and the Secret Service discreetly in different areas, and then those old Ansel Adams, photographs and the old paintings of, of how this nation gradually became what it was, you are, you are in awe when you walk into that White House, into that Oval Office, and you become very, very careful about every word you say. Now the problem becomes that that group of people who inhabit the White House and who routinely go there gradually get quite separated from others. I don't think that's healthy, but that's where we are. And the third thing I would say is, all right, we all know now it was a terrific mistake what we did in Afghanistan. I wrote a book in 2010 called The Wrong War saying this was nutty and that was, that was a decade ago. But why then did our decision makers who are our commanders, why did our commanders not only go along with this, but think it was the right thing to do? I spent a lot of time with the military at all levels. And the one thing the military lacks is somebody at the top who is designated as the risk manager, the general or admiral who stands aside from the commander and says, if I were the corporate CEO and the corporate CEO was undertaking this path of action, how would I relate risk and reward? And if anyone had done that, they would have said, the reward of, of this democracy called Afghanistan that's self-sustaining would be terrific, but what is the risk? What are the odds that happens? About 90% against against, but there was nobody in that role. And so when I look overall at Afghanistan, I come away with three things. It is our culture as Americans that causes us to undertake many wars, most wars, some wars. Our culture has a lot to do with how we fight and when we choose to fight. Our White House has become too powerful. There is no countervailing body to give advice and consent. And our commanders do not have one among them who is told to stand aside and be the risk manager and tell the commander when the risk, far, far, is too great that he's taking. Those are my three conclusions. Now, let me look ahead a little bit. We're talking about 2021. Within the next two decades, the white Americans of European descent, like me, will be a minority in America. We are will undertake in the next two decades a monumental change in our basic culture in ways that no nation has done before. By the mid-2040s, that's not that far. I remember we started Afghanistan, 20 years have gone by like that. The next 20 years will go by, I'll be gone, but many of you will still be here, most of you. We're gonna be an entirely different country and we haven't thought, what, how, how is that going to be that when you have a majority of your citizens who did not have anything to do with the founding fathers, didn't come out of that tradition, did not come out of the, the, the Renaissance, the, the European tradition at all, how then does our culture shape itself in matters, in all matters, but also in the matter of war? I don't know, but that's a vast difference that's about to hit us. And the other thing, when we look at where we're going, we all know we have one major foe, one, and that's China. We don't quite know what to do about that. We haven't come to grips with it. And when we do, it's going to be with in the context of a different culture than the culture we're in today. I, I would stop my remarks there and just turn it over for questions. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for your analysis. So We have quite a few questions coming in. The first one from Carl Goldberg. Our military and civilian leaders seem to be abysmally ignorant about the nature of Islam and about the extent to which the doctrines of Islam hold on the hearts and minds of those, the Afghan population. In your opinion, what role did this ignorance play in the Afghan war disaster?
1: Huge. The the degree to, toward which Islam as a religion is the blazing belief of the Afghan people is something that we, because we're we're so secular, have a hard time grasping. It made a vast difference. And going forward, that's in our rearview mirror, because we've left Afghanistan. We can handle the Islamist terrorists, I believe. But we have something else called Iran. And the extent to which religion permeates Iran, I don't know. I'm just not an expert on it at all. But I can say that after spending a lot of time in, in Afghanistan, yes, the influence of the mullahs all the way down to every village was much deeper, much more pervasive. Then we realized.
0: Understood, thank you. From Terry Rosen, what part of the decision is based, was based on economic goals in Afghanistan and Iraq?
1: Whose economic goals? Our economic goals?
0: Our economic goals, I'm assuming.
1: Uh, no, I, I, I don't believe in either case. <laughs> we were just giving away money. <laughs> I mean, it's a good way to go broke. So uh, I don't think we had any aspirations that there was that there was a, a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for us. It was the opposite. I believe that we felt we were so rich we could share and make life better for others.
0: Thank you. From Jeffrey Schaff. Do you think that as long as the Taliban controlled in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda and other dangerous Islamist groups could use that as their base and therefore our goal of driving out the Taliban was correct?
1: That's a tough one. Uh, There was a chance right at the beginning in November of 2001. When Mullah Omar was scared, he was in charge of the Taliban, he was scared to death. And he was trying to communicate with us through intermediaries. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld and others said, no, we're not going to negotiate with you. Okay. looking back with all the 20 years of hindsight, uh, would it have been wise then to try to cut some deal? I think so, yes. But maybe I'm being naive because I know a lot of the people in the agency would say, Bing, they'll hand you your head on a platter when it's all over. Um, So I would would say that I do not have the expertise to know whether it was possible to separate the Taliban. the, the, The Taliban are a cancer inside Afghanistan, but they were not a global scourge the way some of the other Islamist terrorists like ISIS would like to be. But is that a distinction without a difference? We're going to find out over the next year, but to a large extent, uh, they're aligned with each other. And I don't know how we could have peeled one off from the other. I don't know.
0: So ultimately, do you think that any goals were achieved? That's from Kerry.
1: When you quit a war, you're a quitter. And that's how the world looks at us. I, the way other people, the way, the, the way throughout, throughout much of the world, they're looking at this and, much, and they're saying, they go to the Americans, no guts, no willingness to stick it out. And that's going to come back to haunt us nothing ever good comes of quitting on a battlefield ever and the ironic thing is we had two presidents in a row who were they i am sure both of them would say not me but but they, they they had some common characteristics um they're extremely hard-headed and believe they're right period uh i believe both of them were wrong but All of the military said to President, to both of them, don't do it, sir, don't do it. But both of them went ahead and did it. Um, And we won't know fully the consequences of this for for some time, but you don't lose publicly in the disgraceful manner we did and walk away and say, oh, that has no effect on us. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, yes, it will. You can see Marines aren't, aren't much for quitting.
0: Yes, of course. Uh, Richard Horowitz asks a follow-up on question on this. What could this or any other administration have done in order to withdraw from Afghanistan without the Taliban taking over?
1: Couldn't be done. Um, but why withdraw from Afghanistan? I mean, that's, that's the thing that puzzles me in the end. We had gotten it down to where we had, say, 2,500, 3,000 in uniform. 5,000 contractors, that's 8,000 and NATO was had about another 8,000. We had 16,000 troops and we could keep bombing the hell out of them forever and they couldn't take over the major cities. They had the countryside. I would have continued that indefinitely. What, what, the American public weren't upset about it one way or the other. It wasn't a big deal of the American public. It wasn't a big deal of the Congress. Um, but Could we have gotten rid of the Taliban? No, we absolutely could not. Am I willing to to fight indefinitely at very low cost? You bet. I mean, when you consider just the the air base alone of Bagram, look where it is, this huge base, just south of Russia, just to the east of Iran, and just to the west of China, and you, you can, you can figure all those countries saying, Son of a gun, what are they doing in our backyard? It, it, for, for a small cost, I would have hung on to that forever.
0: Hmm. Carrie again uh, Do you think that the Iraqi and Afghan issue will be repeated?
1: No. I'll tell you what, I'll I tell you what bothers me. Let's get to the big one, let's get to China. And let's go back to what I said about our culture. Remember we fought a cold war for 30 years without blinking about it uh, relative to Russia uh, because we were unified as a country and there was the iron curtain and the notion that that Russia was a true antagonist. In many ways China is a true antagonist and if China had its way they would cut off not only Taiwan they would also cut off Japan They would change the face of Asia if they could. And so there has to be in our culture, a willingness to stay the course in the Pacific, the way we stayed the course in Europe. But we're going to have an entirely different culture within 20 years. And whether that same willingness and the body politic will be there, I, I can't predict, but it's going to be very, very different. And the other thing that's hurtling toward us is that our debt, is absolutely unsustainable, but we keep kicking the can down the street. Now, what does that mean within 20 years? It means that we'll have to be paying four or 5% interest every year on that debt. That drives out practically all the other discretionary social programs and will put tremendous pressure upon the Pentagon at a time when the entire culture has changed to the extent that if you ask me, I think we're gonna have a much smaller military 20 years from now, we're still going to have an adversary in in China and it will be a fraught situation.
0: Thank you. Speaking of China, an anonymous viewer viewer asked, can you please comment on how you believe the US military can counter the Chinese mindset going towards the changing proportions of the US? Are our best days behind us? Are we expecting the classic 250 year cycle demise of civilizations?
1: Two hundred and fifty years from now, we're all left. Um, but I don't mean to make light of the question. I just—it worries the hell out of me without being able to give you a direct answer. The—the the, you know, I'll tell you another thing that bothers me about it, though. I mean, it's it's a legitimate question. But we stood up to the Soviet Union successfully as a nation, as a culture. Do you know what, what puzzles me now? We, we, we say that we understand that a clash with China will basically not be a landmass. It won't be an Afghanistan kind of thing. It won't be our infantry. It will be our aircraft and, and our surface vessels and our Navy. It'll be a different kind of, of clash. And it may be small, it may be large. I think it'll be quite different I think the way in which we're gonna get tested at some point will not be with missiles. It will be with digital non-connections, non-connectivity. I mean, supposing you you end up in a little tussle with China and, and China strikes a little bit against a few banks or something just to disrupt us a little bit. And we do the same to them, we're probably more capable than they are. But then that gradually means that you have as a country to to go without bank card to having your electricity occasionally go out for two or three or four days. And then you begin to ask as an entire country, um, is this worth it? Is this worth the game? And I could imagine Z and the Chinese saying, they'll break before we do because they, they are selfish and because they don't have toughness anymore. So the, the, the kinds of futures that I would worry about is not a, not a large direct clash with kinetic explosions. It would be more something that wears upon our will and our cohesion as a society.
0: Thank you. So, this uh, the point you raised about the there's no risk management leader. Uh, Martha Cohen asked, Should we adopt what the Israelis have, the 10th man per se, that is charged with taking the opposite view to challenge these dis- serious discussions?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's interesting. That's the kind of thing that we should be thinking about. I'm not sure what model comes to mind. Uh, that's one. But don't continue with what we're doing. Uh, what, what baffled me? Look, twenty years where you had three or four different chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. All together, you had twenty generals in Afghanistan, and all of them said they were winning. They knew they weren't winning. And they, there was something there was something something inherently wrong with the system where all the four stars believe they have to back that one four star who was the commander at the time, so that you don't have anyone standing dispassionately apart and saying, wait a minute, are we really going to have a surge over there, which I argued strongly against, to send our soldiers on average once a week into a village in the middle of nowhere with a tribe that's hurtling headlong into the ninth century, and think that that we're going to somehow by our presence change the culture so that they will reject the Taliban and come over to our side. The whole, the whole concept of the nation building and counterinsurgency struck me and others as being just so wrongheaded. I couldn't understand why we continued with it. And, and many of the general officers are my friends, but it's like you have friends and you agree if there are certain sore subjects, you, you just don't push at those sore subjects it's because you want to remain friends. But this is one of those, I, uh, something is wrong with a system that just goes along that way and, and, and ends up losing. Uh, and, and when I hear people like General Milley say things like, well, we have to look at the strategy. Don't give me that. It's the people who were in charge of the strategy. It's people like you. And, and, and as long as you have a closed club, Certain kinds of people never, ever, ever say a bad word about the other. All senators never say a bad word about another senator because they don't want that coming back at them. Lawyers have that same sort of thing. Doctors, cardinals in the Catholic church. certain hierarchies understand that to be a hierarchy you have to stay together as a hierarchy. And to a large extent, our four stars have adopted that kind of attitude but you don't go and lose a war after 20 years and sort of say, well, it's the strategy, none of us who did something wrong. Um, Therefore, I don't have the solution, but I can say somebody has to look at this darned hard and say, why did you go 20 years and not anyone say that the risk reward was crazy? The risk was 90%, 99%. If anyone had been the risk manager, he would, have, he would have called time out very, very quickly. That shows why I'm a civilian.
0: Thank you. And to your other point about the White House becoming too powerful, Isaac Cohen asks, um, on the flip side, true, our founding fathers established that only the Congress can make a declaration of war. But sometimes we have to make a quick decision. Can we really always afford to spend weeks or months discussing the issues before a decision is made to go to war or not?
1: No, but I didn't mean I didn't mean immediate battlefield decisions. I meant something more pernicious. I meant that when we divide as a country to the extent that the Congress abdicates the role that was there by the founding fathers, that they are to be separate and equal, and that The executive executes, but the Congress is the one who establishes the legislation and the money. But when you get this, this congruence between the president and one party, then the ability of Congress to to be an equal branch is pivoted out of badly out of control, I think.
0: Thank you. Um,
1: well, we've come so- to the end anyway at, 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 at 1.30, you know, so.
0: Yes, very good point. Uh, before we do go, can you tell our viewers where to find some more of your work? I've been researching you quite a bit before this webinar and it's fascinating.
1: Well, thank you. If I can get a plug in for myself, and it's not for myself, it's, it's for, the, for the troops. The, the last book I wrote called The Last Platoon was my effort to take the 20 years of the Afghan war and just to tell a story and say, this is what I saw at the bottom when we were fighting and this is how they fought and this is what the White House was doing. And it was, it was like you're on two different planets. So I, I spent a couple of years just writing one book called The Last Platoon, the last platoon to be in Afghanistan, um, just to show the difference and how far the White House had diverged from those who were fighting the war.
0: Thank you. And for our viewers, the link to buy that book is actually in the webinar invitation. So, yes, thank you again. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Bing, so much for joining us today. We really my, appreciate it. My, it. Pleasure.
1: my pleasure. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. For our viewers, please join us Wednesday for an update with Ashley Perry at 3 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.